0: You're listening to Be There, Do That, the podcast featuring everyday stories about food, race, and social impact in Africa. I'm Yolanda Busby.
1: Certainly no one can argue that we don't have a very serious problem in this country. Three quarters of all South African young children do not meet the minimum standards for nutritional intake. Millions and millions of children go to bed hungry every night. Somewhere between five and 7,000 children die of hunger in this country every year. A shocking statistic that most South Africans are simply unaware of. Did any of you know that every day 15 children die of hunger in the Rainbow Nation? Surely the horrific reality of starvation and hunger is that we need to embrace whatever technology is out there in order to produce more food. Well, here's a newsflash. Unless there's a drought, South Africa already produces enough food for everyone who lives here. It's worth saying again, we already produce enough food for everyone. Despite that fact, millions of people are going hungry, or subsisting on a diet that is completely inadequate, or sometimes dying of hunger. And why? Because who gets to eat, and who doesn't get to eat in this country? Depends on how much money people have to buy food relative to the cost of that food, not on how much food there actually is.
0: Dr. Tracy Ledger, researcher and food systems activist, author of An Empty Plate, dishes up a full one when talking about local food history. After the successful overthrowing of apartheid in 1994, the South African Human Rights Commission was established by constitutional mandate. And since then, it's helped to craft and enforce what's been broadly described as one of the most, if not the most, liberal constitutional democracies in the world. Now, if you aren't yet hip to all the changes that went down in this country during that year, and for all the years since, let me just tell you, it reads better than any historical novel you could ever imagine. In the past 25 years, South Africa has gone from being called the rainbow nation, complete with its foundation of black diamonds, to rainy days, and then to drought, from self-generated power of all sorts, to power outages of every sort, and then complete with typical political corruption alongside economic innovation, social disruption, and more, all in the name of democracy.
1: I think a lot of this has got not so much to do with food, as it has got to do with the kind of society you aspire to be. And I've always believed we aspire to be a different kind of society, and that's why the right to food is enshrined in the constitution. We're one of only 22 countries in the world that has the right to food constitutionally guaranteed. It's not even in just one part of the constitution; it's in two parts, section 27 guarantees everyone the right to sufficient food along with things like shelter and water and section 28 of the constitution gives particular nutritional rights to children.
0: It reads South Africa has one of the highest rates of poverty and inequality in the world. Currently there are about 11 million people who are food insecure that means they don't know where their next meal is coming from
2: Mm. yum
1: yum yum as a society every society draws a line where it says beyond this point other things are more important than making profit mm. so every single society does that some to a greater or lesser extent so the argument is not about whether or not there is a line in the sand there always is one the question is where we draw it yeah you know and so it fundamentally comes down to the kind of society that we want to have and how we value issues of social justice and equity over other things. And, you know, I I might sound naive, but there are some things that that are just wrong. And it is just wrong that thousands of children in this country die of starvation every year because it's completely, completely unnecessary.
0: Are you hungry?
1: 120 years ago, there was a thriving class of black family-owned and worked farms that produced the bulk of the food for the new towns around South Africa. And apartheid land and labour policy put an end to that. Today, most farm workers live very bleak lives. They earn a pittance, they often live in subhuman conditions. Their lives are also very precarious. Millions and millions of farm workers have been evicted from farms all around the country over the last 25 years, some of them children who were born on those farms. Their livelihoods are also precarious because of seasonal variations in agriculture. The current drought in the Western Cape means that thousands of families have lost their once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to earn an income from picking fruit. Cruelest of all, farmworker communities have among the highest levels of food insecurity in South Africa. The people who produce our food are those least likely to be able to afford to eat it.
0: And at the same time, its population of nearly 40% unemployed and nearly 60% under the age of 35 need to feed themselves, families, and more.
1: And I think that one of the reasons why apartheid was such a successful system for so long and why all systems based on difference and segregation last for so long is because people are made blind to the reality of other people's lives, either through the physical separation of them or by this thinking in their head that they don't matter. Um, You know, and, and people live in their comfortable suburbia, and a couple of kilometers down the road, people are starving to death. But if you refuse to see them, then you won't see them.
0: But this is Africa, you might say. How can you not see the people most in need? And if there's enough land, why don't the people just grow their own food? That's the typical question that follows on.
1: Yeah this you know this this kind of grow your own food is, is just become this idiotic way to explain away food security and essentially this idea that you know the next person who tells me that you can grow enough food to feed a family of four in a garden the size of a back door i'm going to punch them in the face <laughs> <laughs> because it's it's complete nuts and utter bullshit. And I say to them, well, I tell you what, why don't you do that? Why don't you go and get a piece of ground size of a back door and feed your whole family on it? And then you can quickly work out, of course, it's complete nuts and utter nonsense. It's not possible. Um, and and the, the big nutritional deficiencies in this country are not fresh fruit and vegetables. Every South African could eat more fruit and vegetables, but they're in high quality protein. If you're on the streets of the township. You'll find actually, albeit a limited range, you will find high quality fresh fruit and vegetables cheaper than you can buy them in the supermarket. That's not the gap. We don't have the kind of urban food deserts they have in places like the United States. We're very well serviced in fruit and vegetables by street traders. The real gaps in people's diets are in protein. So the fact that policymakers and a whole host of do-gooders advocate that people grow more vegetables as the solution to their dietary problem just reinforces this idea that actually they're not that interested in the real lives of these people. Because if they spend 48 hours with them, they'd understand that actually there's a hell of a lot of spinach very cheaply floating around the township. Um, you know, getting people to grow it is not the point. They need they need protein. Yeah. And the other thing is that when the, the the major component of your food security strategy is that people must grow their own food, essentially what you're doing is you're making them responsible for solving their own problem. And it's not too far from that to come into the conclusion that they are the problem. Mm. So if you look at individuals, so if, if, the, if the solution is to get people to grow their own food and to understand more about nutrition, what you've done there is at the stroke of a policy pen, you have completely erased all the ways in which the system in which these people are located, which they had no part in making, is responsible for their hunger. It just reflects, again, the fact that the powerful have absolutely no interest in the reality of the lives of the poor and hungry. Back to Biko, you know, it, it, it paraphrase Biko the hungry are doing all the listening and the welfare are doing all the talking.
2: The, there is no running away from the fact now that in South Africa there is such an ill distribution of wealth that any form of political freedom which does not touch on the distribution of, uh, proper distribution of wealth will be meaningless. Uh, the whites have locked up within a small minority of themselves the greater proportion of the country's wealth and uh, if we have a mere change of face of those in governing positions what is likely to happen is that black people will continue to be poor and you will get a few blacks filtering through into the so-called bourgeoisie and our society will be run almost as of yesterday so, that for meaningful change to occur, there needs to be uh, an attempt at reorganizing the whole economic pattern and, and economic policies within this particular country.
0: Stephen Bontu Biko was the founder of the Black Consciousness Movement in South Africa in the 70s, a student led movement which at its time credited Biko with coining the term Black is Beautiful a phrase which was meant to incorporate all of South Africa's people of color under one unity or, you know, hive mind social consciousness. Irony of ironies, a politically banned activist, when arrested for violating his banning orders, he was imprisoned, tortured, and ultimately died, while the official report of his death was recorded as a hunger strike.
1: Even in a, in a democratic South Africa, when you don't walk away from your history just, and just throw it away, your, your history walks with you and there are a few places where your history walks with you as intimately as it does in the food that you eat.
2: Mm. <clears throat> yum 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 yum, yum.
0: Ugh, my brain is buzzing my stomach is grumbling all this chatter about who can and can't eat was making me hungry and still after having my lunch, I was thinking about all of this. So I decided to call a friend and researcher from the University of Cape Town's Center for African Cities, Gareth Hasem. Gareth, hi. Yolanda, hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm really good. I just had a big, really delicious lunch. I sat in a cafe, a local cafe called Bootleggers. And I was really interested in uh, kind of realizing how easy it was for me to order two uh, poached eggs, perfectly poached on like this little bit of a... Uh, potato crostini thing and uh, with some rocket on the top and I just kind of forgot myself for a moment uh, and didn't remember where I actually am because most people are not eating like that on a daily basis. What would you have for breakfast or lunch?
3: Well, (laughs) I had some toast. That's all I had. But anyway, um, that was my choice. But unlike others who have to eat what they can, what's there rather than having a choice.
0: So interesting, right? Choice, that is really kind of the operative word. You know, that's a really very interesting thing to consider, isn't it? I mean, it's like uh, between your moving from home to work, you probably are flooded with choices and uh, can move past them pretty quickly in an automobile. So What is it about this food landscape? Because we're in a very dense urban environment. Meanwhile, the outer rings of the city somewhat turn into, I guess, maybe, is this a correct phrase, urban food deserts?
2: Potentially,
3: yes, and I think if one imagines one particular type of food system, so there is all sorts, as you say, I could drive and be flooded with with choice in my my vehicle on my way to work, where others who are queuing at 4 a.m. in the morning, to travel thanks to apartheid spatial planning in the city of Cape Town, travel for two to three hours in public transport. That's increasingly unreliable. Um, so they're getting up and having to get all the way through to to work um, and are often making choices about food that are impacted not by their own desires, but by their travel and their travel obligations. So they're buying something in other areas. And so here... The, the sort of notion of a food desert is where there is there's an absence of food. And I think the informal economy in, in, in much of Cape Town is responding to the sort of geography. of. So, yes, there's a food desert if you're thinking just around supermarkets and formal stores. But I, I would say there's, there's plenty of choice. And there are a whole collection of informal traders that are providing food.
0: You know, I had a chat with uh, Tracy Ledger, and what Tracy is saying, author of *An Empty Plate*, um, and as a food systems uh, kind of uh, advocate or activist, I imagine researcher and activist, what she is saying is is somewhat similar. That there is a, a funny irony where people think, "Oh, shame, there are South Africans who are starving, and what's the matter? Why don't they just eat more fruit and vegetables?" She said, actually, there's a lot of available fruit and veg. That's not the issue whatsoever. Um, So I like that you're saying something quite similar, which is that the informal trade of uh, fruit and vegetables uh, is making choice much more available to people, um, but that the problem is uh, dense, nutritious protein, healthy protein sources are what are in um, short supply. And she suggested that that's related to the industrial food system that that is actually supplying um, traditional food outlets. I'm thinking of a study that you did in a local township um, to, to, to really take an analytical view at what's available. What did you find there?
3: I think what we did find was that there was food available, And there was a variety of foods available in Kanana. But accessing protein is is something that's a real challenge. And I I certainly agree with Tracy that the sort of global food system in which South Africa is is embedded and the sort of industrial system does align its business sort of imperatives towards servicing a particular clientele. But what I think is also particularly challenging is how food is so directly connected and what food is consumed is directly connected to what the household budget and what is available
0: oh my word when i consider what i just spent on a simple poached eggs and a potato crostini
3: wow and so what we are seeing in our research and what i think emerged in the Kanana study as well was that people were reducing certain key dietary items from their diet. And their diet was becoming far more limited to than than what one might imagine a diet to be. Mm-hmm. And this isn't through ignorance or anything else. These are key strategic sort of budgetary decisions that people are making in order to get their kids to school, make sure they have decent school uniforms, make sure that they there's public transport to get to and from work and all these things. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes a determinant of also, what is in the diet, and as you say, protein is unaffordable these days. You know, it's really being priced out of the market. So, the African Centre for Cities is, is as its overarching goal as a project, is trying to understand African cities and cities of the South more broadly. Um, but our, our primary focus is in Africa, and most of our research takes place in Africa. and for a while, food wasn't really part of that work. It was around urban governance. It was around energy and water and climate change and violence, etc., and the changing nature of the city, housing, informality. But we did a survey of it. right back in 2008. I was wondering more around a more sustainable production side of the food system.
1: Mm.
3: But the ACC did some work, and they found very high levels of food insecurity and, and what is and that,
0: this, sorry to interrupt you, but what does yeah. that mean from a layman's perspective, food insecurity?
3: So, what it means is that there are a number of things that people aren't able to get. So, it means that sometimes there isn't enough food available, but our work since has shown that that's very seldom the case in African cities. As Tracy Ledger says in her books, there's plenty of food around. But it's more around the ability to access that food. So, and again, this is where the informal sector is so much more beneficial because people can buy things in small quantities rather than having to buy a thrift pack of eight or nine apples. You can buy a single apple or a single tomato. But it's around accessibility. So your affordability, can you afford to buy the food that you need? Can you get to the places where food is being sold? And do you have some other means of which to get food? So do you have networks that you can pull on to even borrow food or exchange food with others? So it's not just around the cash economy, but it's mostly that. So are you able to access that food? Can you budget for food? Do you know that you're going to be able to get food in a while? And so what we found is that a lot of people, to put it into layman's terms, were really battling to eat food on a regular basis. They couldn't really afford to buy the food that they wanted to eat and not only that, they were often discounting meals. So they were eating maybe two meals a day or sometimes only one meal a day. Yep. And even in extremes, not eating on a day. And they were filling themselves up with fresh water or something like that. And also they were cutting out diversity from their diet. A long-winded answer to what is food security. But it also provides... An Just
0: then I had a flashback reminding me of a time when I thought, huh, maybe there's an opportunity there with indigenous grain that some of us are overlooking. But anyway, I'll tell you about that a bit later because there's really something there that's of great um, interest. But increasingly, like you said already, people can't afford it. So it's really interesting to consider in a South African context where we have access to all these ancient, these grains. ancient grains. Enjoy what you've just heard? Keep listening. Simply download part two to this episode and empty plate, social justice and ancient grains. And while you're at it, why not share it with a friend? The best is yet to come. This podcast is brought to you by Prosperity Food Company, makers of Trust Rusks and Be Grateful Iced Teas, along with other fantastic indigenously African snacks. Come catch a buzz with me, bi monthly, here and wherever you find your other favorite podcasts. I'm Yolanda Busby. Supported by The American Corner in Cape Town, sound editing for this episode was done by Daniel Weber with sound design by Melanie Robertson at Origin Audio. Thanks for listening.